Cameron Anstey is the proprietor of Apartment 9 Press based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and a PhD student at Ottawa U in the English department. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. Now, you recently helped to organize a conference on Irving Layton. Yes. Held at the university, and in addition to celebrating his uh, contribution to the Canadian canon, you also focused on a team of people that coalesced around him, so perhaps you could lead us into that. Sure. The paper that I gave during the conference was focused on about a five-year period when he was being published by McClellan and Stewart, the first five years of that relationship, when there's a remarkable coherence to the material objects that were being published, so... Obviously, M&S was a publisher, Frank Neufeld was a designer. Um, for the most part, Sam Tata's portraits of Irving Layton illustrate the books, and all were edited. Photographs. Photographs, yes. Yeah. And all of them were edited by Claire Pratt. So this runs from Red Carpet for the Sun in 1959 to The Laughing Rooster, 1964. Um, that was sort of an artificial cutoff, because Neufeld continues to illustrate Layton until 67. But I chose 64 because... That was the last one Claire Pratt edited, and it was also sort of the last of this sort of golden era for him at M&S, when there were a lot of resources going into the books, the production values were very high. Neufeld obviously had free reign to do as he pleased, and that became a very interesting moment to me in Leighton's career, because it marks his transition from the small press world of the likes of Contact, uh, Jonathan Williams, uh, Divers into this large national publisher where he suddenly had print runs of 5,000 instead of 250, where he suddenly had a promotion machine. Uh, he really rose to prominence in this moment. And I think there are some interesting sort of continuities, but also tensions between his life with the small presses and his life with M&S. But I also thought it was sort of fun to give a paper at an Irving Layton conference that kind of suppressed Irving Layton. I think I only had about four lines of one of his poems in the paper, and the rest of the time was spent talking sort of completely around him and looking at the, uh, the social kind of network of people that contributed to these books, going out often uncredited work, but work that really drove his rise to uh, public attention. So was it simply Jack McClellan cottoning on to how good he was that brought him into the fold? You know, I don't know how he, how M&S came to invite a manuscript from him. It, it, the first one, Red Carpet for the Sun, was, was pitched as a collected poems. On the inside flap, it, it says collected poems, but he had had uh, sort of ostensibly these selected and collected poems before that, and he would continue to do that. I mean, six years later, M&S would do another collected poems from him. Uh, but he had certainly begun to achieve a degree of of public sort of visibility in Canada. He was starting to appear on TV and on the radio. Right. There were uh, readings across the country at that point, or not? Not, not no. particularly. Um, poetry readings in Canada, in a real organized way, in the way we think of them today, don't really begin to happen until the late 50s and the early 60s. So he's there at the start, certainly. And he goes on large reading tours in the 60s. I think they've been fairly well documented. You know, he was starting to get some international attention. He was being published outside of Canada. And I, I guess some things coalesced. I, I'm not sure how him and Jack came to know each other. But there was a lot of faith on, on Jack McClellan's part. With, with Red Carpet for the, for the Sun, first of all, publishing 5,000 copies of a book by a poet was a huge risk. M&S was experimenting at that moment with this book, with uh, Sheila Watson's The Double Hook, and with Mad Shadows by... Mary Claire Blay, they published them 
in paperback as well as hardcover. In simultaneously. The, in, simultaneous to the first editions, which was happening, I think, in Europe a bit, but not so much in English, and especially not in Canada. And so that itself was, it was a huge risk. And then letting someone like Frank Neufeld really go to town on the design. I mean, these are, are fairly lavish productions. There's a number of pages of, I don't even want to call it sort of prefatory material. It's just these sort of cinematic entrances to the book that, you know, wouldn't have been cheap to do. You've yeah, they have this lovely, uh, well, I, I think whimsical might be a, a, mm-hmm. an accurate description there. Yep. They're funny. They put you in a, in a kind of a, a pleasant mood, don't they? Yeah, they're very playful. And they, they get more playful. I think with Leighton, he had a good... It was a productive relationship. I don't know if Leighton was always on board with what Neufeld did, but he certainly enjoyed working on on Leighton's books. And, I mean, Leighton's image gives so much to work with. Well, and he very much does, at least in three of the books that you've mentioned, use the image right on the front cover, doesn't he? Yep. And the Swinging Flesh has the portrait on the back. Right. Cover. And looking at Red Carpet for the Sun... It's almost like uh, Leighton's looking through the blinds at you, staring at you. And these colors, these black, red, and gold colors play throughout. This, uh, for this, do you have any explanation for that? Uh, Neufeld has said in interviews he just thought that they were Leighton colors. I, I imagine he started with red here because of the book being called A Red Carpet for the Sun. It, it strikes me as a clear sort of... Yeah. color to begin from um, and I, I can't claim I know enough about color theory to <laughs> wonder why he might have gone to gold next but they really are powerful bold colors well the sun is gold isn't it and in fact when you open it up uh, the book you take the, the jacket off and look at the, at the cloth Leighton's eyes are stamped onto the cloth and the cloth is a lovely looks like a, a, a sunny Wheat field almost, doesn't it? Yeah, he's and he's playing on Leighton's image so emphatically. These yeah. books, with with the exception of the Swinging Flesh, as, as you noted, really trade on on Leighton's face. And and this is the moment with, with Red Carpet. It sells out five thousand copies in in its year. Um, he wins the Governor General's Award, which was brand new. And Leighton begins touring the country and finds this national celebrity that he certainly feels he always should have had. But mm-hmm. finally, there was an audience for it. If you compare these books to the earlier Contact Press books, his image is really nowhere to be found, with the exception of uh, the long pea shooter, where on the cover you have these elements of a face. There's an eye, and there's a nose, I think there might be an ear. And then on the inside there's a drawing by Betty Sutherland of Leighton, but it's sort of it's nestled in and it's, it's abstracted. It's almost as if his, yeah, his whole sort of persona is being born here. It is, Absolutely. His reputation, even today, turns on uh, this sort of ego, this self-awareness and the self-belief that sometimes is spoken of quite critically, that he, he believed in himself to a fault. Mm. But I think in these books you can see that image beginning to be shaped, and, and Neufeld should be given, I think, credit for that, for better or worse. Uh, yeah, credit for recognizing what a powerful personality, well, maybe it didn't take much to recognize <laughs> what a powerful personality he was, but the genius to to incorporate that, you know, bang, right right in your face. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something that Leighton, for all of the, the ego that he would he would show publicly, he, he chafed against a lot of this. In his letters, you find him starting to crave anonymity in the early 60s. He starts to feel that he's being sort of taken over by this image of himself. And I think it finds its peak with 
Balls for One-Armed Juggler in 1963, where Neufeld uses a series of photographs, I believe, by Max Layton. These are the ones that aren't Tata. Mm-hmm. Um, in a letter to Jack McClelland, Layton describes them as Max's photos. But he, he hates the photos, and he feels that there's too many images of him. And if you flip through, you see three on the cover, but you see four more photographs of Irving Layton before you get to his forward. So, yeah. so seven in total. And one that just covers the entire page. Yeah. And he's, uh, he does look like a devil in that. Absolutely. He? Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of overwhelming. And if you had this notion that Leighton was full of himself already, and you began yeah. flipping through the books, you see picture after picture after picture. And yet from our eye, our sort of modern perspective, I suppose we've come, become used to this cult of personality. Mm-hmm. When I look at this, I don't see, well, ego? I think it, it, it's easy to read ego into it, given everything that surrounds Irving Layton. You know, it's, it's difficult to read an Irving Layton poem free from all of the context of his person, of his career, of his personal life. And so I think even in 1963 in Canada, Layton was a, a towering figure of poetry, but also just of letters as a cultural figure. He was, mm-hmm. he was inescapable in those years if you were paying any attention to Canadian culture. Newfeld certainly understood that it would sell books. M&S was, I think, happy to do that. But it's also a beautiful aesthetic object. Removed from all those concerns, it's a gorgeous book. It really is. It, there's three profiles of Irving uh, Layton's face in different shades of red, black, and gold. And then that gold sort of permeates throughout in a sort of a wispy, beautiful way, as you say. Mm-hmm. Now, is this revolutionary? Is you know, is this the first time we would have seen such an emphasis on personality in Canadian book design? In the world, I think of Canadian book design, specifically of poetry. I, I think it's probably true. But mm-hmm. Canadian poetry, for many years, had had turned on personal images, on on celebrity. You think of someone like Polly Johnson touring the country, um, Earl Burney touring the country, doing readings. I mean, but there, on, there were precedents, the but for book covers, yeah. I, I think probably. But I, I can't say that I can back that up with with facts necessarily. But it is my feeling. The books clearly stand out. They mark some, something has changed in Canadian book design with Neufeld's work. And so we've got a case where we've got some of Canada's best poetry meeting up with one of Canada's best designers. And in your paper, and I'm speaking with Cameron Anstey, the proprietor of the Apartment 9 Press in, uh, based in Ottawa, Canada, so we've got a, a great designer meeting a great poet, but there's more than that. Yes. With the exception of Balls, where it's not uh, Sam Tata's photographs, Sam Tata had a long and productive relationship with Irving Layton, taking portraits of him. Uh, you see it on Red Carpet for the Sun, Swinging Flesh, uh, Laughing Rooster, Periods of the Moon. He's everywhere in Layton's career, and Layton... I think is is a pretty steady thread through Sam Tata's for quite a while as well. Uh, his portrait of Leighton in 1961, the one on the back of the Swinging Flesh, mm-hmm. um, is in the collection of the National Gallery of Canada. They purchased it in 1978. Uh, it shows up in a book of Tata's, I want to call it A Certain Identity, that, that uh, Deno published, and it's the very first portrait in the book. It's 50 portraits of, of Canadian figures. There's actors, writers, and Leighton's is the first one. So 
in the 60s and in the 70s, that photo would have carried weight as a photo of Irving Layton. But I think many people might encounter it these days just as a, as a portrait by Sam Tata, who might know less about Irving Layton, because he's not the central figure that he once was. And so that photograph has its own aesthetic life, totally removed from, from the poetry. It's an amazing portrait. It, it really is. It's such a, a compelling, and he looks so ruggedly handsome. And it's actually, it's actually quite a, a wider photo than mm-hmm. is used on the books. It's the same portrait on the cover of A Wild Peculiar Joy, the most recent M&S edition that I, I, I assume is still in print. We use that portrait for all of our promotional materials for the Irving Layton Conference. We spoke to Sam Tata's daughter and, and were able to secure the rights from her and, and, and uh, purchase it from the National Gallery. And it, it's the iconic, in my, to my mind, it's the iconic photograph of Irving Layton. What's so interesting is now we've got them, you know, the two of them side by side, the image on the back of uh, the Swinging Flash and then an image from a book that the Porcupine's Quill put out in 1991 of Tata's uh, photographs of writers. You've mentioned that the, that the actual, the original extends quite a ways beyond and gives a sort of a dark room. Um, and it, places, it makes... Leighton look a little bit more vulnerable, I think, mm-hmm. in, in the original. Then, so again, we might conject that Frank Newfeld is playing with the image, perhaps making him a bit more dominant or less. Well, the word I think the word is vulnerable. Absolutely. When we spoke to Raven Tata about using this this photograph, her one condition was that we not trim it. That we use the, that that Sam felt that way about his photographs, and he wanted them to be unaltered. We use the full thing on the program, and yeah. I, I think it is—it's it's the right choice. I mean, it's really—it captures more than the, than the close-up, and it, it, be, it realigns your image of him. So we've got this this great uh, Canadian photographer in the mix as well. Now, how how did he get in? Did did Newfeld recruit him, or did that these photographs were just on the scene, or you know that I I don't know. I don't know enough about Sam Tata to understand how he came into it but he was photographing writers and artists and actors yeah so he he, had, he was the go-to I mean there's Karsh obviously but I suppose yeah I, I'm, I'm hesitant to yeah say too strongly anything about him but uh, okay. the other player in on your team is one that I'd never heard of and most people haven't Claire Pratt um, I didn't know her involvement when I started writing the paper because she's not credited anywhere in the books. Um, if you look through the, the books from the eras that I've, I've discussed in the paper and that we're talking about here, Frank Newfeld is typically credited as designer. Tata doesn't get credit for photographs until you get to The Laughing Rooster. Mm-hmm. And you don't see Claire Pratt credited anywhere as editor. Now, I, I believe this is partly just that it, Standard it wasn't the convention yet. Yeah. easier to credit. Yeah. Uh, these people. Newfeld was involved in establishing the typographic designers of Canada as a sort of trade association, I suppose, um, who organized their own exhibitions, who organized awards, but also, I believe, sort of pressured publishers to give credit where credit was due. And, and so you see designers in the early 60s being credited, and it becomes inconsistent later in the 60s once uh, the union folds. But editors show up nowhere. Ruth Panofsky, uh, last year, or the year before, published an essay about Claire Pratt at McClellan Stewart. And she had, had done a huge amount of work in the MS archive, tracing Pratt's 
involvement. And she worked very, very closely with Irving Layton from A Red Carpet to the Sun to The Laughing Rooster. She's responsible for pushing him to write the prefaces, for example. She was really on him to do that. She would occasionally trim things that he sent along. Uh, she kept him on schedule. These books came out at a very regular rate, effectively one a year, and Leighton in these years, according to Panofsky, didn't have a contract with M&S. He would just send in a pile of stuff and the book would come out. He was very lucky. Uh, but Claire Pratt sort of kept all this going. She egged him along. She was responsible for editing these collections. He, the actual poetry itself? I, I believe so, okay. according to Panofsky's article. Um, I think it was Laughing Rooster. She encouraged him to pull some words out of his preface that she thought were a bit too inflammatory. And he did. He actually listened to her and, and made these changes. But he writes these glowing letters to her about, oh, you're my wonderful editor and I couldn't do this without you and, and you're so patient and kind and, and she would egg him on and, oh, well, then where's my poem? Why haven't you written a poem for me yet? Right. But they had a, a wonderful, productive relationship. And she, she doesn't show up in Elspeth Cameron's biography. Newfeld isn't there. Uh, you don't see their presence in the letters, uh, Wild Gooseberries. I mean, Leighton, of course, wrote thousands of letters, so that was a very necessarily narrow selection. But in these go-to places where you, you think you'll read about Leighton's life, you don't find traces of these very important partners, you know, in, in his aesthetic practices. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that he had this brilliant manuscript and that's why he won the Governor General's Award and, and he was able to make a living as a poet for the next decades. It was that a lot of, there were, I think, five people to my mind, including Jack McClellan, who came together and performed a lot of deft aesthetic work that created these book objects that went a long way toward establishing him in, in Canada and elsewhere. Well, they did. It sounds to me like they did exactly what you want a publisher to do. They did a, a brilliant job of taking not only the work itself and improving it, let's say, mm-hmm. but, as you say, packaging it, promoting it, and putting Leighton on the national stage. Mm-hmm. This research was outside of my typical interests. I'm much more personally invested in the world of the small press. And so this was was a diversion related to the conference that was lots of fun. But I think that it helped to to realign some of my own attitudes about larger publishers. I think it's easy to write off larger houses as more motivated by money, as controlled by lots of concerns that seem unrelated to the art and that get in the way of the art. I think quite clearly Jack McClellan is a quite a special case. Yes, yes. And I, I think with these books, with Leighton, with all the people involved, I mean, it's a high watermark for this sort of work. And, and I don't think it's necessarily true that all work that came from larger presses was treated this way. I mean, it, it, could, it just simply couldn't be. But I think in this you can see an opportunity to, to give more respect to some of the larger publishers. Mm. I mean, McClellan and Stewart's wonderful for a lot of reasons, and I have lots of respect for them already. The narrative I expected to follow when I was doing the research was um, Leighton coming out of the, the community-oriented small press world of contact and moving into the national publisher, and maybe some more difficulties um, in the production side, and just sort of the business getting in the way of the aesthetics, but what I found was this wonderful convergence of, of people who did such great work and has gone largely uncredited. I think Tata's is very well respected, but certainly in the literary world he's less known. Yeah, and I, I know that Frank Neufeld is highly regarded by people in, in the know, mm-hmm. but this is a country that we live in that uh, still only has, what is it now, 36, 37 
million, perhaps, if that. And I was reading an interesting article recently about how to get a, a nucleus of a critical mass large enough to bolster and encourage a really impressive cultural output, you need a population of at least double that, maybe more. So in other words, this is important work, and not that many people are aware of it, but, but they, should, they should be. I sort of stumbled on Neufeld in this topic because I uh, had the opportunity to design the, the uh, print materials for the conference. Mm-hmm. And so I kept going back to these books as what I thought of as the iconic images of Leighton. And it didn't take very long to realize that they were all designed by the same person, and, and all the pieces started to fall into place. But then, obviously, as the research went on, I, I became aware, and I was embarrassed to find out how much of Newfeld's work I already had on my shelves, and that I, I'd grown up with. I mean, I, I knew alligator pie and garbage delight growing up, um, having gone through two degrees already that tended to focus on Canadian literature. I'd spent a lot of time with the new Canadian Library books that he designed, you know, Leonard Cohen, the design for poetry series, he's everywhere. He's, mm-hmm. he's almost hard to not come into contact with if you're studying Canadian modernist literature, let's say. So why is it and, important and, to look at the, uh, the visuals then? Well, I think that the book object is as much a part of the experience as, as the poems. Reading, you know, a printout from the computer is a different thing than reading one of these books. You already talked about flipping through the preliminaries that Neufeld will put in and how it brings you into the world of the poems. It, it sets a tone personally, it sets a tone for the poems. At its best, design can really complement poems, and you hope that the design... I mean, it's a book of poems at the end of the day, and the design should be in service of that. You don't want to see the artist no, trying to take over. It's like typography, isn't it? Yes. We've got a few additional uh, books here designed by... Uh, by Newfeld, and he had told me of the experience with Earl Burney with Ice Cod Bell or Stone, new poems published in 1962. And in fact, I think this this may have been you know considered at one point for inclusion in that Design for Poetry series of four books, but. But all that to say, I think Frank put a bell on there, and there's no, there is no bell mentioned. So, and I think Bernie was quite upset about that. So it's not always harmonious. It's not always at the service of the uh, the poetry. But what a great, you know, design though. It's beautiful. One of the best parts, the the part I enjoyed the most about writing and giving the paper was that in, in person I was able to put up a PowerPoint, and I had maybe forty slides of, of book covers and, and preliminaries. And when I started speaking about Frank Neufeld, I sort of pulled the room and asked, do you know his name, do you know his work? And most people didn't, but then as soon as the slides started turning, they realized how much they knew of his work. I mean, he comes to Canada permanently in 1954, I mm-hmm. want to say, mm-hmm. and by 1957 he's designing the new Canadian Library, which is, when you think about it, he was a part-time employee at McClellan Stewart. He was a new immigrant to the country. He's admitted that he knew very little about the writers of the books that he was designing, but the New Canadian Library was this huge project, you know, with nationalist intentions to establish Canadian literature as an object of study, as a visible cultural mm-hmm. formation. Or to put it in the hands of students at a reasonable price, too, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and there was a huge promotional campaign, they were very visible in yeah. bookstores, and Newfeld's work, this man who was new to the country and barely knew the writers, was responsible for what was one of the first national 
sort of nationally visible representations of, of Canadian literature. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he's publishing brand new work that has gone on to be hugely influential with Leighton and, and the Watson and Mary Claire Blay. I mean, Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. Like, these are, are big writers. And, and he stumbled into this place, seemingly, where he was responsible for both rehabilitating this work or, or representing it to the public, but also presenting new work in experimental ways. It's, it's astonishing. And then his, his children's work you know, was there for multiple generations of kids. Yeah. So what we're doing basically is we're paying tribute to to excellence here, that it has been recognized, but more people should (laughs) be aware of it now. So why should they be aware of it? I I think that these years, I would say sort of through the mid-60s with Newfeld's work at, at M&S. I mean, this is really a high watermark in Canadian book design. And as objects, they're beautiful. The books that he was... He was they're a high watermark. But on the other hand, Canadian book design and the technology has, has improved to the, such an extent mm-hmm. that there's some great stuff being produced and has been since. Mm-hmm. But it's a high watermark in, this, in what sense then? Well, let's say an early high watermark then. I, I think I think there's some work going on that's contemporary with Newfelds that's equally important. If you look at some of the Contact Press books, not all of them, but some of them are as beautiful as the work Newfeld was doing. I brought along today two that Avram Isaacs published through his gallery in Toronto, a book by Raymond Souster, Place of Meeting, and then a Kenneth McRobbie book, Eyes Without a Face, that were collaborations between these avant-garde Canadian artists mm-hmm. and, and poets that, that grew out of a reading series. So there's work being done, but I think Newfeld opens the door for other designers at uh, at larger houses like M&S, but, but my personal interest would be more people like Coach House who come along 67, 68, and begin really radically experimenting with, with book design, with typography, with types of paper, and with... Technology. The, technology. Right? And yeah. because they're outside of the sort of bureaucratic framework of a place like M&S, they can really get into these experimentations. You know, Victor Coleman is, is sitting on the linotype machine designing the pages. It, it's not that there are these different floors and different offices and everyone has their department. Everyone was doing everything at, at Coach House. You know, the poets were helping design and buying. They were a bunch of stoned-out acid freaks. Yeah, pr- printed in Canada by mindless acid freaks. They would stick that in. And so you get books with pink ink on yellow paper, and it's like it's almost unreadable, <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful and it's fascinating. And they have a real freedom because the stakes are so low. So you're suggesting that a big house open up the door to smaller houses? Or I, just, I just the fact that... They did, these books did sell well, they became... Yeah, I, I think there was something to aspire to with the design. Removed from Leighton's poetry, removed from anything, I think as books, they were fascinating. But yeah, well, you're absolutely right, as far as, like, Stan Bevington has credited Newfeld yeah. uh, for opening his eyes, I think. But if you, like, you can see evidence of, of the, these being done at larger houses because... Like, if we take Red Carpet for the Sun, Newfeld does the cover, and he does the cloth, and he does the preliminaries, but the pages aren't designed by him. The, whoever the printer is is designing the pages. So if you read his interview in Devil's Artisan, where Tim Inkster and others sit down with him and go through sort of book by book, he's, he really doesn't like the pages. But he wasn't in a position to do anything about it. He had a very restricted job. Whereas when you get to Coach House, 
they could do whatever they wanted. They could make George Bowering's book in the shape of a pennant. They could publish these magazines that are three feet tall and, and librarians hate because they can't Shelf, store them. Yeah. They can't shelve them in yeah. efficient ways. So they, they have an opportunity to do things, but I think that you can look back to Betty Sutherland at Contact. You can look at, at Neufeld's designs. You can look at... Like, I know the Contact readings in Toronto that spawn gallery editions. You know, people were attending those that go on to be involved in Coach House. Um, I've seen a review from Bowering of those books just glowing about about the design. And so these ideas are out there for the poets that come along in the next 10 years and who, as you say, suddenly have access to cheaper equipment, new mm-hmm. technology. They can actually just do it themselves. Um, if you look at Contact, they were printing all over the place. Sometimes they're printing in England, sometimes in Montreal. When Souser was involved, he would typically do it in his basement with his mimeograph machine. So you have this really wide range of production techniques and production quality. And some of it's really stood up and some of it maybe hasn't, but there's a lot of attempts to do interesting design work with Canadian literature in in the 15 years that precede Coach House and everything that follows. Now, as far as collecting them goes, how's your luck been on that front? With Neufeld or with Coach House? Both, And, and Sutherland as well. Sutherland, I have had zero luck. I've got I've got a couple um, dudex that she did. Uh, the Lane ones, I never see at, at prices I can afford. And I know in ten years they'll be even more. And I'll wish I'd just bought the trigger. Them and, and, yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's been out of my range so far. But I do have a fair number of contact books. Someday I'd like to have as many as I can get my hands on. Uh, the new fellas turn up all the time and at not exorbitant prices. How about this coach house? Have you? Uh... Done yeah. Many of those. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of the early '60s ones. The '70s ones turn up all the time, and and they become less interesting as objects as as the '70s wears on. There's mm-hmm. probably seven or eight years where they were really experimenting. What would those be? '65 to '75 that range. Yeah. Is it '66 or '67? The first comes out, but yeah, I would say pre '75. They're still really experimenting. There's some great McFadden ones from the '70s that are yeah. just wild to look at. Um, one of my favorites is Frank Davies' Weeds. It's a big green one, and it's just stapled, but they it's on green paper, and they've got these really delicate images of, of weeds printed under the poems, but in a really soft ink, so you, you can't see them right away unless you, you manipulate it in the light in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, you find them in stores. I'm sure in Toronto they're everywhere you find them, but they're available, and they're not, they're not too expensive except for some of the earliest and the highest points. Just finally, uh, if you speak to the inspiration that these people may have provided you with in terms of what you're doing with Apartment 9 Press. Mm -hmm. I aspire to something like Neufeld was able to do, but I don't have these resources at my disposal. I I do everything at home, which means I print it at home, I'm tearing paper for the covers, I'm I'm stitching, so it's, it's, it's fairly limited what I can do. So when I'm looking for design cues, I, I go more toward a place like Contact Press. Try to do something typographically interesting and, and maybe just an image or one splash of color because that's sort of what I can yeah. manage. A- yeah. Another favorite of mine that we haven't really spoken about yet is Weed Flower Press. Do you know Weed Flower? I do. Uh, Nelson Ball's Nelson Ball, Press yeah. from the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. They were often illustrated by his wife, Barbara Crusoe, who's an amazing uh, artist, visual artist. Her, her paintings are spectacular. She had her own press called Sari Press and did a number of collaborations with B.P. Nickel and other concrete poets in Canada. How do you spell Sari? S-E-R-I Press. Okay. She would do screen printing in limited editions of 30. So she did a lot of B.P. Nickel's early 
concrete stuff, a lot of his cartoons, like Milk the Morph, she was involved in those, and very heavily involved in finding ways to produce what he was doing. Her, her journals were published by the Mercury Press in the last six or seven years. There's two volumes, and they're called A Painter's Journey. She's gone through and, and pulled out specific dates over about a ten-year period, and they're remarkable for the writers who come through. If, if you're interested in small press, she'll be, oh, I was working on a painting today, and then at the end she'll say... Oh, and, you know, Mike Ondaatje came by and we had dinner, or John Newlove was he Like, there's this really amazing collection of people, but they're also great documents for her life as an artist in Canada in these years, and specifically as a, as a woman artist in Canada. I hate sort of saying that sort of thing instead of just calling her an artist, but mm. in, in the diaries she talks about going to see gallery owners, for example, and if Nelson came with her, they would speak to Nelson instead of her, so she had to ask him not to come along because... You know, it's just sort of a fact of it. But anyway, she designed a lot of the covers for Weed Flower, and she would do screen printing. She would do the, the typography, and they're beautiful and they're minimalist because he was mimeographing everything. So they're they're so clean and they're they're spectacular. I, mm. I hope to have all of those someday, but some of them are, are quite expensive. It's interesting you mentioned John Newlove, who was you know connected early on with Robert Reed's private press. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael Andrade, who actually worked at the Coach House Press. Mm -hmm. There's some very important names that are connected to, obviously, to small presses. And this is a fascinating study of how, in, in this case, Leighton burst out from that community. With Andrade, I mean, there's some important Coach House books of his. But there wasn't a marriage of a designer with the poet and the, and the writer. Or was there? The interesting bibliographic items from Andace's early years is Collective Works of Billy the Kid. It was published by Anansi, but it was designed and printed at Coach House. And if, if you look to the acknowledgments page at the back, you see that he thanks Coach House people before he thanks anyone from Anansi. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting moment. He's spoken about how he always wanted Coach House to design his books in those years. And I mean, I, I can't really pretend to know what he was thinking, but Anansi in those years, this is 1970, I think, Billy the Kid yeah. comes out, they were a bit more organized, and I think they were better at distributing books. But they weren't as good at designing no. the books, nowhere near. So by going to Anansi, he had access to their organization, but he kept his foot in the coach house design, and I, I think it is a beautifully designed book, and it, it's an excellent marriage of the, the work with the design. On, on the cover of the first edition, you have this silhouette of a, presumably Billy the Kid, but just a, a man on a horse. And then when you get to the first page of the book, it's a blank frame. It says, this is, uh, I send you a, a picture of Billy or a portrait of Billy. There's no image. And you flip through the book, and so much of the poem is, is playing with this idea of who Billy the Kid was and all of the myths about his person that had really uh, taken off in the 60s. There's this explosion of movies and books about Billy the Kid, and they all play on this idea of truth. And then you get to the end of the book, and, and Andace reveals the sources of, of some of the quotations and, and the images. Um, so in the early edition, they really push all that material to the back in, I think, a great way. It's a book, if you pick up more recently, they've, they've brought it all to the front. And a lot of the more recent editions put on an actual portrait of Billy the Kid on the front cover. So you have this image of him that's fixed for you, and then you open the page and it explains where the sources are. And then you get to this blank frame, and I really think that that interrupts the experience of the book. If you go back to that first edition, I think it's seamless. It's, it's perfect. I wonder who designed that. I don't know. They credit the designer specifically, or if it just says designed and printed at the coach house. 
Because he, he didn't really, uh, Dodge didn't really require this marriage with a, a designer like Neufeld mm -hmm. to become popular in the country. But maybe he became really popular when he made it with the Booker. Yeah. So maybe he didn't enjoy the kind of fame within Canada that Leighton did because of his connection to Neufeld and, and the others. I, I have a very skewed relationship to Andache. I was born in 1986, so the year before Skin of a Lion comes out. And so coming like growing up, Andache was, he was there. You know, once I was aware of books, he was a huge figure. And so my, while I'm more interested in his work from the 60s and 70s, I have no sense of when he really takes off. He wins the Governor General's Award for Collective Works of Billy the Kid, but it was... Mm not as, as large an event as it is now. I know it, it was brought up in the House of Commons the year him and B.P. Nickel won. Jointly. Yeah, they yeah. won jointly. Nickel won for a collection of works, and one of them was published by Wheat Flower, uh, the true eventual story of Billy the Kid. So we had these two Billy the Kid books that won, and a, a member of Parliament complained that Canada was funding books about American outlaws, what are we doing this for? Aren't there any Canadian stories to tell? So I have this sort of funny bit of fame, but I don't really know when Andache explodes. Coach House, I don't think, ever had sort of star designer. I think it was a collective yeah. enterprise. And the the uh, results are, I think, hard to argue with in those years. It, whatever they were doing, and however messy the process may have been, they were doing it right. Yeah. And the end results, I think, justify it all. It's gorgeous, those books. Well, and they're there to be had. I think that's the exciting thing from the perspective of, a, of Canadian book collectors. Uh, they're not beyond the reach of most of us, mm -hmm. and they're terrific. So uh, thanks so much for shining your light on this team in particular, but in general on the importance of design in the overall production process of books. Well, thank you for asking me to do this, and, and thank you for, I mean, you've interviewed Frank Neufeld before, this is something that you have long cared about, and it's, uh, it's great to have somewhere online to go and, and learn more about it. I've been speaking with uh, Cameron Anstey, who is the proprietor of Apartment 9 Press, <laughs> and a <laughs> PhD student at uh, Ottawa University here in Ottawa, Canada. Thanks again. Thank you, Nigel.